Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. This time, the third and, who knows, maybe the last part of my conversation with Scott Reynolds Nelson. He's a historian at the University of Georgia, and he wrote the immensely interesting book, Oceans of Grain. In the past couple of episodes, we chatted about transport, how moving wheat around the world affected where and how people live, and about finance, how paying for that wheat created some of the crucial elements of modern money. This time, it's empire. And just like with transport and finance, despite our best intentions, everything is interlinked. Empires arise at trading crossroads, and they grow by taxing the grain moving through them. Not just geopolitical empires either, but also commodity trading empires, many of which got their start in the middle of the 19th century as the empires of wheat arose. I've hinted at some of the ways grain and empire are connected, but there's much more. So, to kick off, I asked Scott Nelson a very basic question. Is it fair to say that grain represents power? Yes, uh, it represents energy, and it's it's a circulatory system of humans connected with one another. Um, it represents energy in that sense, power, but it also, where those places cross, right, where you have multiple meeting places for those black paths, those paths in which trade takes place, um, it provides an opportunity for empires to build themselves up. And so a lot of economists have, have suggested that, uh, well, you know, you look at the places in the 19th century that are wealthier, and they also happen to be nodes along the Roman Empire. Therefore, the Roman Empire caused these things. No, it's the other way around. The empire itself built itself up on those nodes. It identified those nodes, it, it lengthened and strengthened them, but the empire depended in part on controlling those circuits and controlling those places where you could potentially make sure you tax it, right, and make sure you control it. You mentioned the Roman Empire, but this goes predates the Romans by quite a way. Mm -hmm. So predates the Greeks, probably one mm -hmm. of those Near Eastern... Right, right. <laughs> Mauryan Empire. Uh, yeah, if we, we talk about the city-states, uh, that, that period, the Tigris and Euphrates, those regions... There, it's quite simple. It's quite straightforward, right? You establish yourself along the uh, largest river, and that's the source of power. And so we do have archaeological evidence that suggests that grain growing precedes those empires. And that's why I think it's important to recognize that grain growing and distribution is um, a human thing and that empires are kind of sit on top of it. They, they're imposed by it, perhaps a thousand years later. And... Controlling these nodes, um, how how do the nodes come under the control of an empire? Is it is it invasion or is it is it just building up the node? Is there a common pattern? I don't think so. We don't know for sure, but we can imagine in part by looking at the various explanations of this. It might be a group of families that happens to be near a. A crossroad that establishes a route around it. It might be that um, in the wake of a famine or a plague that uh, a group of robbers establish themselves and <laughs> call themselves uh, an empire. Or, um, you know, I, I could imagine other uh, possibilities that a, a, a trading group uh, becomes a kind of 
stable gang and no longer uh, moves when it robs, but robs, quote unquote, <laughs> by taxing. If you think about robbers, the whole idea of robbers, that's collecting a tribute by moving. And uh, an empire is its opposite in that it is collecting a tribute by staying in one place. The tribute, though, can kind of sow the seeds of destruction when people feel that maybe the tribute is too much and rise up against the empire. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, that's what happens with the Ottoman Empire in the as increasingly it draws harder and harder on the, the Balkans, right? That, that You see these Balkan uprisings, you see Greece uprising in the 1820s and things like that. So I do think um, that, right, you'll see uh, a place that taxes too heavily. And I think that's a decent explanation for the collapse of many empires is that their ambit is restricted and they draw too much from the periphery and then they collapse. Two empires that kind of clashing in the 19th century, you've got Russia and you've got America, both producing large amounts of grain. Both continue to this day to produce large amounts of grain. But did, did they compete with one another on the matter of grain? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, at first, it's Russia, um, you know, Catherine the Great, 1780s. Uh, she takes over this region of the Black Sea and starts to sell grain from Odessa. The French Revolution and those imperial wars, the Napoleonic Wars, leads her to be the kind of provisioner of Europe. The U.S. is disengaged from that network directly in that it's providing grain really to the Caribbean. It's not until really the Crimean War when uh, Istanbul blocks all grain from exiting, grain prices increase 40% uh, on that day, <laughs> the next day, and France and Great Britain um, uh, become allies of all, of all things to defeat Russia. Um, along, you know, France and Britain combined with the Ottoman Empire uh, try to stop Russia's control of the Straits of the Bosphorus. The United States on that day um, sees an opening. And it's then that the grain barons um, began, begin to see the tremendous amount of wealth that can be generated from New York, from Philadelphia, from uh, Baltimore, as uh, if grain prices go up 40%, suddenly the United States can provide food to London and Liverpool. And that is extremely exciting. And it's that, I think, that makes the Civil War possible. And so this is why the Crimean War, I think, comes right before the Civil War, just about seven or eight years before, is that the grain barons are like an empire in that they're drawing a small tax from the expansion of a black path all the way to the west. They see the opportunity in providing grain to London and Liverpool, become a great empire, to become the sort of competitor to uh, Russia. And they're willing to fight for it. They're willing to fight over the plains of Kansas. They're willing to fight for expansion to the West without slavery because it turns out the grain is better produced in the 19th century by uh, free laborers than, than by slaves. And that's, it's a complicated explanation for why that is, but it has something to do with large estates, relatively little labor, all these sorts of things. 
it's clear to everybody who's involved in railroads and grain expansion that it, there has to be free land in the West, that is, no slaves. And so that becomes the war. That becomes the Civil War. It's a war over the expansion of slavery in the West. Who is going to get those planes? Who is going to provide the food to Europe? Who is going to compete with Russia? And that direct competition between the U.S. and Russia takes place during the war a little bit, but then it's after the war that we see this massive transformation of both the United States and Russia. It's interesting because at the same time that the U.S. is fighting a war on slavery, um, Russia is doing the same and getting rid of serfdom. Right. My, my point uh, is, in part, this is a story about uh, how you collateralize debt. That the so you're going to have to explain. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so the question is, how does Russia and the United States borrow from Europe, which is the capital center of the world at this point? Uh, so how does Russia borrow? Uh, Russia has a Russian land bank. It um, provides loans to large uh, surf owners. And those surf owners grow grain. Uh, it goes down to Odessa, and it goes out to the rest of the world. Um, this process is actually not doesn't work especially well because those uh, large surf owners tend to gamble a lot. So if you think the land bank is lending to the surf owners, the land bank itself is then borrowing from British. Uh, you know, orphanages and um, l capitalists in the north of England and things like that through Russia itself. Russia is the kind of go-between. This whole kind of complicated scenario doesn't actually work especially well because the people that are the best producers of this grain are actually people who are quite close to the Black Sea. They don't actually need as much lending as you'd expect, and they're not maybe getting it from the land banks because some of them are Odnovortsi, they're, they're former... Uh, soldiers, the descendants of soldiers who've gotten, you know, a thousand uh, hectares of land for their military service, and they don't have that many serfs, and they're actually producing a great deal of grain. So this whole system is a bit rickety. The United States comes along in 1850 and says, ah, we have an idea. We'll collateralize the debt differently. We'll provide collateral in a different way. The collateral will not be on serfs. So in, in fact, this whole system depends on the collateral of serfs because serf owners say, I have 500 serfs, I'll get 500 rubles a year, and I'll continue to grow. What the United States does with land grants is it collateralizes Western land. Now, how does it do that? The Congress controls all Western land. It makes treaties with Indians uh, and, com and Native communities in the West. It buys the land. It then owns it, and the railroads are given the land in a checkerboard pattern. Imagine a checkerboard laid out alongside a railroad, like a snake with checkerboards. Uh, all the black spaces belong to the railroad, or the white spaces belong to Congress, and they can sell that land. When a railroad goes through that land, it generally doubles the value of the land. And so this effectively pays off Congress for allowing a railroad to settle in this region. The railroad, then, is an extremely expensive instrument, impossibly expensive, right? Uh, two, three, four million dollars. Um, how do you pay for this? The way you do this is you offer bonds to uh, London bankers who then sell it to uh, London pensioners and, and um, Liverpool pensioners and pensioners in Scotland and elsewhere, orphanages and things like that. They buy these railroad bonds 
um, which provide the upfront capital. And then that money for the railroad is paid off over a space of 10 years as the railroad is completed. Now, that's one way of generating capital. The second way of generating capital is to take the land and collateralize that. And so what the railroads do is they create separate land railroad bonds, which say, you'll give us the money, the collateral will be in the land, and uh, we'll pay you off over the space of 10 or 20 years. <laughs> that land is then sold to people who settle in the West right? And that's how they pay off the bonds. The people who settle in the West are Europeans as well. So the, the whole process basically depends on uh, Europeans settling there and paying off in chunks. So, sorry, it's a complicated story. <laughs> but that collateralizing of land rather than serfs is an important difference. And it provides, in a way, an engine of economic development in the American West and an engine for the payoff of bondholders in Britain that's new and very different and very, very exceptionally, works exceptionally well. So well that white Southerners start to worry because the West is getting filled with people. All these Western railroads are filling with, with people and they're producing tremendous amounts of grain and they're sending, selling it in cities at this point. And so this clash too is the Civil War. I, I, I did say at the beginning that things would get complicated and from, you know, empire, transport, Sorry. finance, they yeah. all come together. But then the other thing is that the settlers who are going to these mm -hmm. um, bits of land right. in the West, they need to borrow money too. So where does that come from? Whew. All right. <laughs> you asked for it. Okay. I, <laughs> so this is the, let's start, uh, we need to start back a little bit further because the U.S. as a, as a nation expands in large part by uh, credit. And this is th mostly through what are called country stores. So a store before 1820 means just a place where you hold things. A store after 1820 means a place where you buy things on credit. It's stores plow points and thread and shirting and woolens. And a farmer goes in and says, let me borrow these goods. Um, I have 40 acres of land here in the West and I'm gonna provide you with butter, you know, uh, 10 and a half pounds of butter and I'll pay you when the milk comes in. And that process of lending is through country stores, it starts around 1820 and expands in the United States afterwards. And the trouble is that the interest rate works out about <laughs> somewhere between 18 and uh, 24%, if not more. So that system is the system we have in the United States until the Civil War. And then when the futures market comes along, when we get a futures market, there's a new way of borrowing. And that is to promise to pay in uh, future grain for say a May 1st delivery, and it's October now, you um, will sign over, you know, a uh, thousand bushels, let's say. That goes to a line agent. A line agent is a representative of a, of a sort of a bank slash grain trader. That bank slash grain trader person provides you uh, um, cash. Uh, they take that uh, promise to deliver they package them up, and then the line agent sells futures on the futures market immediately, on the same day, by telegraph, so that there's no risk, right? Um, we've established that we're going to lend this much to the farmer who has, in fact, the number of acres that he says and can grow the, number of uh, the amount of grain that he says. The line agent is the sort of person who converts that into 
a future. The future is then sold on the market. And there, the margin shrinks. So it's not an 18 to 24% interest rate. It's something like a 5 to 6% interest rate. That's charged to the farmer. The line agent makes a little bit of, of cash, and he works with multiple uh, farmers. And then these, this futures market is a place which is effectively a bank, right? Because anyone can go in on any day who, th who knows that May 1st wheat futures are going to be worth about... 6% more uh, at the end of the season than, than, than they are right now will buy that and hold on to it and it will increase over time. Now that's an old thing that goes back to the, you know, ancient, to the Venetians and the Genoese. Um, but he or she can take that future and if they need cash right away, walk into the Chicago Board of Trade, sell it, and in three or four days have the cash that they need to buy whatever they want. So this become, the Chicago Board of Trade becomes a bank that lends to farmers. This is a complicated story, but it's the, the Chicago Board of Trade makes good on the deal. It provides uh, credit to the line agent, who in turn provides credit to the farmer, who in turn can borrow much more at a much more reasonable rate for future expansion. This bypasses the country store and is a kind of brilliant institutional innovation in terms of making it possible to expand more rapidly in the West. And this dynamic allows the United States to expand much more rapidly across the plains than Russia can do in the 1860s and 1870s. So what is the, what is the Russian equivalent? Is there one? There is a Russian equivalent to this. So as you can imagine, people in Odessa are kind of shitting themselves between 1868 and 1872 about this rapid expansion, all of this credit that's being provided. Um, the fact that the United States is so much further away from these European markets, and yet it can sell cheaper. And partly that's a technological thing, but partly it's this really the technology of, in the terms of financial institutions. And so they try to recreate this. And this is where Bung and Bung and Bourne, um, Dreyfus, uh, 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 these other grain traders come in and they say, all right, we can find people who can provide loans to farmers. We need to find our own line agents, and those line agents become Jews, mostly, in Odessa. And so it's in this period in the 1860s where the Greek traders, who had pretty much dominated the uh, grain trade and had been the primary operators, right around 1865, 1866, are displaced by, on the one hand, the ABCD grain traders who established themselves in Odessa and set up warehouses, and uh, a number of Jews who have recently been liberated by the end of serfdom in Russia, who no longer have access to postal routes, no longer have access to postal roads, all the other, there were a few monopolies that Jews were allowed to be involved in that are, are close to them once serfdom is over. They then go out into the countryside and make arrangements with farmers and provide them with loans. And what's new about this and interesting about this is the Russian land bank's not involved, um, but these Jews in o Odessa and elsewhere know who's a good farmer. Right. They look at the fields, they inspect them, they have a sense. And, and the people who benefit by this are the people that are called kulaks. These are mostly former peasants who have 500 acres, maybe 1,000 acres. And they have leased land. They're producing grain on a large scale. They've, they're fixing their own plows and those sorts of things. They are not the old surf owners 
um, who <laughs> have quite a bit of capital, but not a lot of uh, capacity. And so it's clear that the people who are the real innovators in this environment are these kulaks. So Jews in Odessa become the, the kind of intermediaries. And this is important and valuable and necessary, and it allows Russia to compete with the United States, but it also is going to down the road lead to a blaming of Jews for anything that goes wrong. And a sense that Jews are the intermediaries, Jews are always benefiting. And so this, it's when we talk about German anti-Semitism, and we're, we're familiar with that, with the Nazi, with the Holocaust and those sorts of things, we, we, we're actually talking about Eastern European anti-Semitism. And, and Russian anti-Semitism is in some ways, arguably, the kind of origin of uh, German anti-Semitism. This, this sense among Russians that Jews are benefiting is, is really kind of foundational. It's, it's basically how the economy breaks down and is reconstructed after serfdom ends. But Jews become the, the people who are involved in this trade, and they become ultimately the targets of the pogroms. And pogrom is a Russian word. <laughs> yes, grom is uh, Russian for thunder. And uh, pogrom is a thunder of the hooves of the Cossacks uh, traveling through. Now, it's not that the Russian Russian Empire is directly involved in the pogroms, but uh, they are. I mean, they're, they're indirectly involved. So it's mostly the Russian Orthodox Church, mostly Cossacks together. They tend to be little fights that turn into uh, these sort of violent attacks on Jewish uh, regions and they're not they do not attack by and large the relatively wealthy Jews that are involved in the grain trade they attack just Jews and it's mostly poor Jews that are that are the targets actually of these pogroms um, but it's Jews that become the kind of in the minds of uh, the pogromers like if you will the source of their problems a the source of their difficulties I want to switch back to Istanbul and the yes. Bosphorus I didn't realize till I read your book that in the middle of the First World War, um, France and England, France and the UK, promised Istanbul to the Russians? <laughs> That's right. The, so France and the UK, in the, in the uh, agreements that are building uh, the alliance in World War I, yeah, they, they effectively promise that Russia will get uh, Istanbul. And uh, this is a fateful alliance, right? It's, and it's one that ultimately depends on a clear path between Russian grain, got grain and soldiers on the Russian side, and you've got kit and technology and uh, soldiers, but without a lot of grain on the Russia-France side. And the two of those need to be uh, in coordination, and Istanbul is ultimately the place that transfer has to happen. That's the black path that has to work for this uh, alliance to work. And when Turkey allies with Germany, then uh, that pinch point becomes crucial for understanding the war. And so a lot of people talk about Flanders Field and you know the trenches and all that stuff, and that's all important in World War I, but the, uh, Gallipoli is a really crucial story uh, for understanding World War I. The fact that France and Britain are, after a year or so, effectively starving, you know, cut off from access to food. France is producing food, but there's much fighting in France. The fact that they are in dire straits, the Russian army is sadly under-equipped in terms of kit and military uh, capacity, and so a lot of Russian advances on Germany are, end up being, uh, you know, just horrific, um, you know, deaths, millions of deaths. So, um, yeah, the the... Istanbul is, is a crucial and important part. It's promised to Russia, and it becomes, in a way, the source 
of um, you know, uh, a great deal of pain and suffering. And the end of the Ottoman Empire, kind of. Kind of, right. So uh, <laughs> let's see. This is a complicated story again. But we have an Ottoman Empire. It's in the... Let's, let's go back to 1905, 1910. We see the uh, Young Turks emerge in uh, the Ottoman Empire. They have a kind of... Uh, rapprochement with the Ottoman Empire, but gradually they're trying to build a Turkish state and build Turkish identity. And um, there's a kind of incident in which uh, there's a kind of conflict, a direct conflict between the empire and the Young Turks. The Young Turks win that conflict. The Committee on Union and Progress becomes the kind of vessel for a new Turkish state that's building itself up inside the Ottoman Empire, even as the war is starting, uh, Ataturk is replacing the old imperial sultan. Yeah. Um, it's, it's fun talking about what seems to be ancient history. And right now we've got something unfolding on the north of the Black Sea. Right. Um, I, don't, I don't want to prognosticate about what, what might happen there but one of the one of the really interesting things you, you say in the book is that Russia's weakness right. depends on on its separation from mm-hmm. Ukraine I'm not familiar with everything that Putin has said but he doesn't seem to have mentioned grain specifically. Mm-hmm. It's all about some nebulous um, golden age in which Ukraine <laughs> was part of Russia. Right. Does this, do, does he understand? Uh, you can't know what he's right. thinking. I can't know what he's thinking, right. But I, I, I think absolutely that Putin understands this. And Putin's master's thesis on, is on strategic resources in Russia and Ukraine. So historians and geographers throw around the term agro-industrial complex to describe how it is that agriculture is the foundation of industry. That's what Putin writes about in his master's thesis, right? So it's, <laughs> this, is not, this is not speculative. This is, in fact, how he sees uh, and understands the kind of fundament and foundation of Russia's uh, future is is in grain, and Khrushchev argued that. And you know, it's 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 such a part of Soviet understanding that it's the grain provider for this this uh, second world. But um, but it's also in Putin's understanding that grain is the center of the. So you, you can read his master thesis. He talks about the agro-industrial complex. He talks about strategic resources. And I think that we're talking about ancient history as World War One. Let me go back a little bit further to 1890, 1891. The famine is a famine that happens um, in the sort of course, the center of Russia. And at this point, when it happens, when it starts in 1889, there's a drought. But um, by the time that it's clear that Russia is starving, Ukraine has already, what's then southern Russia, um, little Russia is what it was called then, has already exported all of its grain to the world market. And this, I think, suggests at a relatively early period, that Russia is actually a grain absorber, that it's, it is not actually producing as much international grain as Ukraine is. Ukraine is actually flat fields, you know, fresh water, deep ports close to the Black Sea. It's the place that pro- is providing food, and the peasant economy that's further north uh, is, is not 
is not really the center of exports. I mean, there are exports that come from these places, but it's a, it's a fraction, it's a smidgen. Um, so this idea that Russia, you know, the Russian Empire has, that it's peasants that are producing this grain, no, it's, it's people that are on large estates. Peasants are absolutely planting and peasants are absolutely harvesting, but they're doing it one month uh, out of the year for each, the planting and the harvesting. So it's as early as 1889, if not earlier, Ukraine is a place where food is coming from in Russia. Mm. Mm. That doesn't answer your question about Putin. Um, so Lyubashenko shared with the press, and he shouldn't have, <laughs> I don't think, uh, but for our purposes, it's very interesting. He shares with the press Russia's plan for control of the northern part of the Black Sea. And it doesn't stop at Odessa. It doesn't stop at, it, it, it covers all the major ports in Ukraine. It's not just um, Crimea. It's, it's a whole corridor along the northern edge of the Black Sea that Russia wants. It's clear that further invasions are likely, at least in Putin's head, about what it is that Russia requires. Um, that, I think, is important for understanding this, this long-term strategic objective. The other thing is that's important to recognize is that you can see this if you go to Odessa or before the conflict, you could see this, is it's a lot of Russian grain that goes out through Odessa. That uh, the Western part of Russia, the only efficient route to the world market is via Ukraine. Um, you know, Putin builds this, uh, tries to build a grain export place at Twops, which is on the other side of the Black Sea, near where the Olympics were. It doesn't generate nearly as much uh, grain as everybody had expected because it's such a long, circuitous route all the way to Twops on the eastern side of the Black Sea. Odessa is the perfect part. Catherine the Great was not, <laughs> was, was a brilliant strategist when she thought that Odessa would be the most important part for grain. You look at where the Chernozem belt is, all this beautiful black soil, it's two wings that spread out and dip down and the place they end is Odessa. It's, it, you know, if you were going to pick a place in the world, the most important grain center of the world, it would be Odessa, not by anyone's choice, but absolutely by where the food is. Scott Nelson, author of Oceans of Grain. I'll put a link to his book and the earlier episodes in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. I do hope you've enjoyed this little series as much as I have. I know there are people who think I'm too gushing a fanboy. That may be true, and it may be the product of my patchy understanding of lots of things. But there's something wonderful about seeing all the interconnecting threads laid out so clearly, from the Chumaki helping the plague to spread itself to the strategic importance of Odessa in Ukraine. And trust me, there are plenty of threads in oceans of grain that we didn't even begin to pick out. I'm going to be taking a bit of a break now over the summer, though I will still be trying to put out Eat This newsletter each week to share some of the interesting food-related stuff that I've come across. You can sign up for that on the website at eatthispodcast.com and I'll also be tweeting at eatpodcast and sharing on Instagram at eatthispodcast. My thanks again to Scott Nelson for taking the time to talk to me and to you all for listening, with a special thanks to everyone who supports the show with a donation. I'll be back in your podcasts in September. And until then, from me, Jeremy Chaffas, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.